Yes, this is a man of big power. How did he get to that position? Will he stay there? In 2012, Xi Jinping was made General Secretary of the Chinese Communist Party. Ten years on, we know a bit about his origin story, but in many ways he remains a remote figure, gathering extraordinary power to himself in the Chinese Communist Party system. Given how much his power is affecting our own debates, it seems right to ask what sort of politician is she? How did he rise through the ranks of the party? And what does it tell us about how power and influence work in such an opaque system, so different to ours? One of the more skilled detectives, you could say, piecing together the clues is Kerry Brown. He's Professor of Chinese Studies and Director of the Lao China Institute at King's College in London. He's just published a fascinating study of the Chinese president. Professor Brown served in Beijing as a British diplomat and has written widely on contemporary China, and he knows Australia well too through his academic roles at Sydney University. His latest work is See a Study in Power. Welcome to Saturday Extra. Thank you very much. Look, you've presented quite a nuanced, complicated portrait of this rather mysterious leader who certainly exercises people's minds. What were you seeking to do with this work? Well, I think, first of all, to recognise that although Xi Jinping is seen in a lot of Western uh, media and, you know, kind of analysis as an autocrat, a dictator, an all-powerful figure, uh, to me, he's a politician and politicians are people we can understand, it's just the context in which they work. Now, Xi Jinping works as a politician in the Communist Party of China. And to understand him, you have to understand the party and the party's history and the party's current, you know, kind of strategic objectives. And if you try and leave that part of the story out, I mean, it's like trying to understand Australian politics without understanding, you know, kind of the relationship between the federal and the state level or British politics, European politics, without understanding, you know, how these systems actually operate and what it means to be a successful politician within those systems. I suppose the final thing I say is, you know, Xi Jinping is a successful Chinese politician. No doubt about that. People might not like him. People might not like what he represents, but he is certainly successful in the system in which he operates. Mm. In fact, you argue that he's part of a great tradition, quotes, of power. Develop that, please. Yeah, I mean, there's an imperial sort of quality to power in China, which has been in place for many, many uh, decades, maybe centuries. And the way that Xi Jinping operates, a bit like the way that Mao Zedong, the founder of the People's Republic of China, operates, and Deng Xiaoping, you know, the kind of father of the reform process, uh, is to sort of give these very broad imperial-like statements and then have the executive come and try and do something with them. I mean, there's no kind of commitment to specificity. His statements are very, very broad. You know, Belt and Road, China Dream, Common Prosperity, Dual Circulation. You know, you have to basically, as an executive officer, do something with that. I think in Australia, in Britain, in America... You know, your politicians on the whole are more into the executive stuff too. I mean, they say stuff and then they say how they're going to try and do it. Well, with Xi Jinping, I think the power is basically you say things and then you basically just assume that others will work out what you're talking about. So it's a different kind of quality uh, for politics and politicians. So it's not quite rhetoric. You're not really talking about rhetoric. No, you're talking about sanctioning broad strategic directions. So you're kind of saying... Okay, the Belt and Road, what does that mean? That means we are a global power now that has to have relations with the outside world. 
And we want relationships which are not like the United States, where we're kind of heavily involved in other security and telling them, you know, uh, kind of what we want. Uh, we want to basically say, okay, we just be, be, be focusing on our economy uh, and we want to focus on, you know, how we create mutual benefit. Okay, mutual benefit is the key thing. Once you've sort of got that framework, then obviously others can come in and work out exactly what that means. Of course, there's a self-correction involved. If people misinterpret it, there are consequences. So sometimes people are timid and fearful, but on the whole, it's meant to sometimes give a framework within which people can some... work. Yeah, it seems to me, actually, sometimes in China, it goes too far. That that seems, if you look back at the Chinese history, there's a sort of a tremendous, like when somebody does say something declarative like that, boy, everybody goes for it. Sometimes you think it might be almost more than the leader intends. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the Mao Zedong period, of course, there were huge mistakes because he said things which were so hard to work out and then everyone piled in and there was mm. chaos. I mean, I think under Xi Jinping, the executive is stronger, but this is a system where politicians are absolutely in control and he's the king politician. Mm. Look, to set the scene, sketch his background for us again, would you please, uh, the early years, even though I think this is a part of the story a lot of people have heard, but he comes from very elite Chinese communist stock, doesn't he? Yeah, Xi Jinping was born in 1953. His father, Xi Jong-sun, was eventually a vice premier, so a very high-level official uh, in charge of culture and propaganda, actually. Uh, but he was felled in the early 1960s after a political fight uh, and put under house arrest for about two decades. So Xi Jinping as a young person, an adolescent, uh, didn't really have his father around. In the Cultural Revolution in the late 60s, uh, Xi was sent from his Beijing life down to a kind of rural area in Xianxi, a province, uh, and then spent about seven, eight years there, which I cover in the book, you know, kind of tough period. Xi Jinping has talked about this later as, you know, the reason why he can put up with tough things now is because he was tough. And then uh, he then went back to Beijing in the mid 70s, uh, went to Tsinghua University and then went basically into the military and then the civil government and has worked his way up. Yes, in fact, you do say, it's ironic to say, but in some ways, she ended up having, having, having had a good cultural revolution. He, he survived his father's problems, he became a party member, he got a lot of experience, and from what you say, he, he was fascinated by uh, watching the party at work, and he wasn't exposed, well, tell me if I'm wrong here, if I've misread you, he wasn't exposed to all the worst horrors which, you know, clearly affected Deng Xiaoping, one of his predecessors. Yeah, I mean, Deng Xiaoping's son, uh, Deng Pufang, was thrown out of a window in Tsinghua University and, and effectively, you know, kind of disabled. He's in a wheelchair to this day. Mm. I mean, Xi Jinping didn't see that level of violence. Uh, he wasn't involved, as far as we know, in, you know, kind of persecuting others. In fact, he was someone who was not being persecuted, but, you know, basically being chastised and uh, kind of incarcerated uh, in the village rather than in a prison. I mean, I think Xi Jinping's a born-again communist. I mean, he's a person of conviction because there's every reason for him not to particularly like the Communist Party because of the way his father suffered and then him. But in fact, I think he believes that he was mercifully spared by Mao Zedong uh, and his family to live another day and that that means that they should be grateful. So it's a different mm -hmm. mindset. 
And when Xi Jinping talks about the Communist Party today, it is with real conviction. I mean, he might be the last, you know, Marxist-Leninist in China, but he's the number one spot for that, okay? So, in a sense, that's why I think he's a little bit like a kind of papal figure. You know, he is infallible because he is a man of faith in a country where, in fact, probably most people don't have faith. Yeah, and he was quite bookish, wasn't he? In the village, he was crowded as quite bookish. Um, and he, he read a lot. He read Klaus Fitz's On War, and he read an early book by Henry Kissinger. Um, and he, he was quite a, a, a well, is searcher the right word? Yeah, I mean, these are um, from accounts of his life in this village by contemporaries. Uh, they have been published you know, in the most recent times. And so they may be a bit of a hagiography. I mean, certainly he makes his speeches, uh, you know, kind of replete with, you know, full of uh, references to literature. When he went to Russia, he mentioned, you know, about 15 different writers, Russian writers. In Britain, he mentioned Shakespeare. In Germany, Goethe. Uh, I mean, he'll probably go on about Patrick White in Australia. You know, I mean, he's he's a man who likes to parade his uh, like of literature. I don't know whether he is able to kind of or has read all these books, but it's interesting that he thinks it's important to say he has. And that's a bit about, you know, information about him and his personality and psychology. I think he did a doctorate, did he not? Uh, although you're, you don't seem to be completely convinced that he did do it. Well, having done a doctorate as a serving diplomat, I, and I didn't have anything like the work pressure that he theory. did. Um, that's right. I mean, he, he um, was doing this as a very senior official in Fujian in the late 1990s. Uh, and, you know, the book is, uh, sorry, the thesis has been published and it's, you know, a book of kind of fairly dense Marxist theory on, on law, ironically. Um, look, I mean, again, it's not whether he did or didn't do the work on this. I mean, who knows? What's interesting is that he felt it was important for him to have this. And again, this is a sort of, uh, you know, kind of sign of the sort of leadership he is, almost like a Confucian-style scholar official, you know, who wants to put themselves in this position of being morally and, you know, kind of in terms of knowledge, a very distinctive sort of personality. And I think that's interesting that he wants that kind of personality in his, in his politics. I should have added that it, it, amongst that group, you know, Klaus Fitz and so on, were Chinese classics. So it wasn't as if mm. it was a, a sort of a great absorption in the West only. I mean, it was very much to do with his own culture, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, I think Xi Jinping is someone we said for the last 40 years, China is, you know, it's the economy. It's all about the economy. The most important thing is for the Communist Party to build China's economy. I think for Xi Jinping and his politics, that's not the case. It's all about identity and culture and about having a China which is proud, that can stand up and believe that its culture is a source of strength. So he has uh, many references to classical Chinese and up to a point contemporary Chinese literature and art. He's spoken a lot about the importance of literature and art. Uh, again, unlike his predecessors, apart from Mao. So this, again, is a distinctive part of his political personality and his political approach. Let me just tell listeners, I'm speaking to Professor Kerry Brown, who's written this very interesting book on Xi Jinping uh, and looking at him as a, as a, a study in power and, and where it heads from here. Um, I, was I was quite fascinated, really, um, by your close readings of his writings uh, in this formation time. And you point out there's a lot of mention of party behaviour and morality, which you see as ideas that were key 
to his path to leadership. Now, was he unusual in that? Yeah, I think if you think of the Communist Party of China in the 80s, 90s and into the 2000s, China's economy was growing very fast and Chinese officials, the party officials, you know, are surrounded by people making money, business opportunities. They were making decisions that other people made a lot of money on. Uh, and, you know, obviously the graft and corruption just absolutely skyrocketed. Now, there is no evidence that Xi Jinping ever got involved in that. That's kind of interesting. And his family, although they've been associated with, you know, property in Hong Kong and other business, nothing like the scale of some of his colleagues where it was in the billions. You know, Wen Jiabao, uh, a premier, his wife was associated with diamond trading and, you know, billions of dollars. So I think Xi Jinping was distinctive here. And it's interesting, again, that he spoke so much about this as a pretty junior official. And then in Zhejiang, when he was the top party official, the coastal province near Shanghai, very entrepreneurial province. Again, you know, he talks a lot about, you know, the importance of politicians doing politics and business people doing business and there being a division between them. And I can tell you, having been a frequent visitor to China over that period, you couldn't really tell a politician and a business person apart at that time. Mm. But he felt that it was important you should so let's just move it along. He does rise up through the ranks of the party and that, that is an interesting sort of um, little saga. But once he's there, he's in another world. It, it's, you know, it's a population of probably 1.4 billion people in China and it's estimated around 3,000 people are in this group who wield enormous power. Would you actually describe as a strange and rarefied world? Yes, as a diplomat, and then subsequently on, uh, you know, kind of semi-formal visits, I was always struck by when you kind of go and see senior leaders, it's such a sort of piece of theatre. You know, you go to the National People's, you know, Great Hall of the People uh, or provincial kind of uh, uh, leadership compounds, and you leave the chaos that's China, which we know and love outside in the streets, and you go into these zones of tranquility and quietness and, you know, everything is very controlled and orderly and, you know, you might as well be on another planet. And I think we kind of don't really understand any political figure when they become powerful. They, they enter a different sort of world where they've got chauffeurs and people around them, you know, serving them. And, yeah, I mean, it's it, this is not unusual. But in China, it is a complete break. Once you go into this sort of, you know, elite, you're never going to travel on a, you know, kind of public transport again. You're never going to travel on a public plane. You're never really going to go around the public world. You are going to be surrounded by people guarding you and you're going to be inaccessible. And Xi Jinping is the most inaccessible in this realm of inaccessibility. See, what intrigues me is that hasn't this been a problem in China's in Chinese history, this cloistering of the very powerful or those with status hold, you know, the people who, uh, who, who really are at the top of the tree from the rest? I mean, you know, they had gunpowder before the West, but it wasn't developed. They had printing press before the West, but it didn't go outside the court. So, I mean, doesn't this predispose them to actually being rather brittle? Yeah, I mean, the history shows that emperors 
could be completely disassociated. I mean, in the Ming Dynasty 500 years ago, Wang Li basically went on strike for 20 years and didn't do anything, uh, you know, from I think about 1600 to 1620 when he died. He just disappeared into his own world and everything, the administrators just carried on. I mean, that's extreme, but, you know, the imperial figures were very, very remote and have semi, almost like semi-religious powers. Now, under communism, it's an atheist system, so presumably there is none of that. But in fact, I, I stress that I think Xi Jinping is a man of faith. He has, he is someone who speaks like a kind of priest you know in a way he's kind of telling people how they should behave he's telling them about you know kind of spiritual issues which is the party delivering this you know great nation state which is almost like a religious objective uh, and and he kind of therefore lives in this very very rarefied remote world uh, and the problem of course is that it becomes so remote and rarefied that everyone loses sight of it and that happens in the past too in imperial chinese history Mm. Well, and look, this is a sidebar, but he went missing for about 10 to 14 days, as I recall, about five years ago. And um, uh, it's never been explained. Uh, Have you got any view of what that was all about? Well, I think there's been so when he was about to become party secretary and leader in 2012 there was a two week period where he yeah no one could kind of find him and it was important because i think the americans hillary clinton was in china at the time and you know she was obviously not in the habit of people you know running away and not wanting to see her <laughs> so she complained loudly um and then he kind of disappeared at the beginning of the covid for 10 days i think at the end of january in 2020 um, I mean, the speculation has been for anything that there was an assassination attempt on him to that he was ill or he had a swimming accident. I mean, it is almost, you know, it's maybe more likely that it, this was just a kind of political act where he, uh, you know, said, right, I'm not going to move on this. I'm not going to do anything until there's a decision in the system, at least in 2012. In 2022, uh, sorry, 2020, I think it's more that you know there was an overwhelming sense that they did not quite know what to do about the spread of the pandemic, uh, and you know everything went into a huddle. Um, since then, they have decided what to do: zero COVID, and that's been very contentious. Mm. But I think this is a system where the top man basically has to make the calls uh, and say, "Okay, this is the direction we're going in," and sometimes it just closes down until he does that. Mm-hmm. Look, I have to ask you, there's so much to cover about Bo Lai because she, uh, you know, he ru- as you say, runs Shanghai briefly, but by 2007 he's in Beijing and his final ascent begins in 2011-12. And the only other contender was Bo Lai, which was just such an extraordinary story. I'm following it. Um, now, how much, just if you can just remind listeners of the context of him, this really charismatic Chinese man um, and his spectacular fall. Yeah, Bo Xilai was a contemporary of Xi Jinping's and a very viable uh, competitor for top power. Um, again, from an elite family. Um, again, you know, very successful as a provincial leader. And then when he went to Chongqing, the huge city in southwest China in 2007, did some very innovative things, which you could say have been copied since. I mean, he had a, a big clampdown on mafia, which is a bit like the anti-corruption campaign under Xi later. Uh, very populist, you know. So he was really looking like a kind of another source of, uh, you know, influence and power. Uh, His wife, though, uh, was uh, accused and then found guilty of the murder of a British businessman, Neil Haywood, in uh, late 20, well, sorry, early 2012. 
And that meant that she, uh, Bo Xilai was himself removed for corruption only a few months and, later. And, and, and basically, um, Xi Jinping had nothing to do with any of that, did he? Well, it was incredible timing. I, mean, I think politics <laughs> everywhere is about luck, right? I mean, I think I, I mm. refer in the book to Cicero and his famous thing about Fortuna, you know, the statue that swings from side to side and you kind of hit the, you know, the hit the target when your chance comes. Um, look, I mean, I don't think that Hayward was killed on the orders of, you know, she so that, uh, you know, kind of the whole thing could be framed. But boy, uh, was it a great opportunity for him to sort of basically get rid of a potentially very troublesome, uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, sort of distraction. Uh, it's interesting to think what would have happened had that, you know, not been possible. I mean, Borsi maybe would have been felled for corruption in any case. Uh, you know, he was a rough and sort of ready figure in some ways. Uh, but he would have been... Yeah, I mean, he would have been a very, you know, very, very significant person in, in mm. the new leadership. Look, thank you very much indeed for that study of uh, she, the politician. Let's hope it does uh, encourage um, some, some even useful knowledge gathering, I suppose, in the next few years. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. My pleasure. And Kerry Brown is uh, from King's College in London. His new book, See a Study in Power, it's published by Icon Books. Getting in touch with ABC RN is easy. Join the conversation live using the ABC Listen app's call and text features.